Today's reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're starting at um, Philippians 1, verse 3 through to verse 11. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. When, when Andrew contacted me and, and sent me the passage, it's a very familiar passage, and I'm, I'm one of these people that when I'm preaching, I don't often look at titles. Because, um, you know, you might come up with your own title or whatever. And uh, when I was preparing this week and I saw the title, Looking Forward to the Day of the Lord. And I thought, that's a really interesting title for that passage. Because all the commentaries will talk about Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, Paul's prayer for growth. And, but it's actually an incredibly clever title. I don't know. I don't know who summarized it that way, but we'll certainly get into that. And I wonder, are you looking forward to the day of the Lord? Well, that's a genuine question. Well done. Excellent. I'm glad somebody is. Because this is one of these things where sometimes in our culture, in our society, in the relative affluence we enjoy, we don't necessarily long for the day of the Lord. A lot of people think the idea of the Christian life is to make heaven on earth, not long for heaven. And I wonder in the last couple of years, have you maybe longed for heaven a bit more? When you couldn't meet together, when maybe when you first started meeting together and it was like 25 people with like 50 meters between you all. When you sang with masks on and their face visors and you thought to yourself, this is completely strange, this is weird, this is not what we are designed for. You may have lost people. You may have been ill yourself. You may have gone through things individually and the pressure of life has squeezed you and when the squeeze comes on, where is your hope? What do you look forward to? What do you long for? Where is your faith placed? And as far as I can see in the world at the moment, we seem to be just uh, skipping from one disaster to the next. So now the news is not about COVID, it's about the price cap. And I'm sure in a wee while it will be about the flu. And we have a war in Ukraine that no one fully understands. We have a world that seems to be ripping itself apart. 
with people fracturing beyond all recognition. Instead of people being united, we are more divided than ever. People think that the right person in number 10 will save them. Or the right person in the White House will save them. And having the wrong person in the White House means they're doomed. Or the wrong person in number 10 means they're doomed. And people place their faith and their trust in things that are temporal rather than things that are eternal. And this is a passage that is about the day of the Lord. And yes, Paul gives thanks and Paul prays for growth. But the common theme of this, the end of each stanza, if you like, talks about the day of Jesus Christ. So I would assume that you're very spiritual in Ferny Hill Church. So you all got up this morning and you prayed. And I wonder what you prayed for. Because when you look what Paul prays for, it's very, very different from what sometimes I pray for and I suspect what you pray for. I remember when I was a very, very young boy and I tried to find this for this morning and I couldn't. My dad um, had these, they were called film strips. Some of you may remember them and you had this really long projector and the narrator was on a cassette tape that you played separately on the Ghetto Blaster. I'm really giving away my age. And you turned this little roller and there was different slides. And there was, a, there was an SU um, film called The Revolution of Reginald Payne or something. And essentially it was like the numbskulls. There was like the wee guys inside his head. And Reginald was at school and he met a girl who was a Christian and she was teaching him how to pray. And this was causing a problem with the government of the interior in his head. That's what they were called. And they talked about the levels of prayer and how the first prayer is not dangerous at all. It's God bless mommy and daddy and look after Teddy. And you don't need to worry about those prayers. And then the second level of prayer is beginning to be a wee bit life transformational, but you're still essentially asking for things. And then the third level of prayer is complete self-sacrificial worship, laying yourself down to God. And the minister for the interior said, and these are the most dangerous prayers, because this can generate a revolution. But we have a secret weapon. And they take the, the, the other guys in the, the government down to the heart of Reginald's body, and there is the me-me monster, locked up. And the me-me monster is saying, things for me, things that I want, things to make me better, that sort of idea. And so often our prayer life is about the me-me monster. And it's about what God can do for us. And when we see in this prayer this morning, the love of a pastor. Paul, Paul says in verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul's in prison. He's in chains probably with two Roman guards either side of him, you would be forgiven for giving him a pass. For say, it's okay, Paul. You don't need to pray for us. You've worked really hard. 
You've worked really hard. But yet in this context of his chains, he longs for this church that he founded, this church that he loves. He probably pictured Lydia and the jailer and the people that came to Christ through his faith, sorry, through his ministry. And he prays, he prays for them. And he prays that they would know Christ, that they would know love, that they would understand the work that they are called to, that they would have discernment, that they would be pure and blameless. And his prayer covers the full experience of the Christian life. He's thankful for their beginning. He is thankful for their service in the past. He's thankful for their commitment in the present. And he's confident that they're going to stay the course. And his confidence is evidenced by their work for their gospel, their identification with the gospel, their defense of the gospel. And he prays that they would keep going. He prays that they would continue to grow in Christ. Now, one of the things about this passage is there's a real tension here. There's a real, real tension and uh, the song that we've just sung, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me, as I was walking up, I had been listening to that in the car. How do we work with Christ? And how does Christ work with us? And that's a real tension in this prayer. And I hope to kind of flesh it out a wee bit. Because on one hand, Paul is saying, well, God's going to do the work. But at the same time, he's encouraging them to work. So, so, so how does that work? It's a lot of work in one sentence. But how does God work? And how do I work? And how does that work together? So I think the, the summary of this passage, if you like, is we look forward to the day of the Lord with confidence and thankfulness for the grace of God given to us in Christ. And that grace works and causes us to grow in Christ's likeness for the glory of God. So the first thing is we look forward with confidence. And in the first stanza between three, yeah, the other thing that's changed in two years is my eyesight's deteriorated. My arm's got too short. And in verse six, Paul says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That is the pivot of verses three to seven. The thanksgiving comes from his conviction that God will begin the work, continue the work, and finish the work. And his thankfulness rests on the fact that they are evidence of God doing that work. And so the first thing we see here is that God begins the work. That he who began a good work in you. And the verb means to inaugurate, to begin it's used one other time in the New Testament in Galatians 3, when Paul says to them, having begun by the Spirit, that the church in Galatian, Galatia was birthed by an act of God, the Spirit of God. Lydia, who you were hearing about last week, was worshipping God as, as someone who was interested in theism or monotheism, in the, i.e. the worship of God, but it says in Acts 16 that the Lord opened Lydia's heart. 
Lydia didn't open her heart. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. Now, the Bible in numerous places talks about God initiating salvation and us responding to that and in part us being responsible for our salvation, but the initiation, the work comes from God. And I'm going to be very honest and say, I don't fully understand this. Okay? There are people literally knock 10 bells out of each other on YouTube over this. There are people who do PhDs. There are people who write books. I don't understand this divine human interface where God at a point in time spoke into my life, called me to himself, and I became a Christian. Because I remember becoming a Christian. I remember confessing with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. But there is a symbiotic thing going on there that we are not necessarily meant to understand. I genuinely believe that. I think what we are meant to understand is that God birthed you spiritually. Whatever that means. In the same way when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The Spirit must give birth to you. And what that suggests to me is that God at some point has started a process in your life if you follow him, and in my life, and he begins this work. But what is more incredible than that is that God continues the work. Because Paul says here, the good work in you and will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So there's a beginning and there's an end. So there's obviously something happening in the middle. And it's this idea that God never gives up on you. God never stops. God never stops. If you read the Bible in um, 2021, uh, as part of the COVID response, we were doing some online stuff, as everybody was, and we did devotions twice a week. And the church went through a reading scheme where we went through the whole Bible. Uh, it was called the F260 reading scheme. I commend it to you. It's a, it's a great reading scheme. But when you read through the Old Testament, what you see is just unmitigated disaster. Unmitigated disaster. They never get it right. And if they get it right, it lasts about 60 seconds before they get it wrong. You know, Abraham is called and does all sorts of horrendous things. Pretending his wife is his sister. I mean, it's just, it's terrible. And God continues to be faithful to Abraham. Isaac is born and is no better. But God continues to be faithful to Isaac. Then Jacob and Esau are born. Talk about dysfunctional. And God is faithful to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, learns nothing from his parents, is a disaster as a father, and God is faithful. Joseph is sold to slavery and the children of Israel are in Egypt. They end up in slavery and God comes down and is faithful. Moses is used to lead them out. 
having tried to generate a political revolution in Egypt and ending up murdering someone. They go to the promised land, the place that they have longed for, and they think it's too big for them. So they then wander the desert for 40 years and God remains faithful. They are fed every day. There is water from the rock. They finally get to the promised land. They're told what to do and they don't do it. They are then given judges because there's this continual cycle of them failing and God being faithful. And throughout all of this, God is remembering a promise given way back in the Garden of Eden when he promised that the seed of the woman would come. And the seed of the woman has to be protected. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's faithfulness is throughout Scripture. When you read the Bible, what you read is the fixed point of God being continually good, continually loving, continually faithful, continually true to himself, continually remembering his promises. And us being complete disasters. That is the Bible. That is the Bible. It's the failure of humanity and the grace of God. So God begins, God continues, and he never gives up. And that's how you live every day. That's how you live every day. Knowing the one that holds all things in his hands is working all things together for your good as Paul says in Romans 8. Now, when the sun is shining and life is good, it's easy to say, God is working all things for good. When the clouds are there, when the darkness comes, when there are difficulties, it is harder to say that God is working all things together for good but that is where we rest on God's word and truth and that's what we think about as you know dad loves to cycle I love to cycle one of the things I like to do is build wheels build bike wheels it's quite a mindful zen like thing that everybody talks about these days and I meant to bring a a rim actually as as an illustration but you would look at a bicycle wheel and you would think, it's a circle, it's, it's round, isn't it? But actually, it's not perfect. When a bike wheel is built, the rim is all ski-with, to use a Scottish word. And when you put the hub in and you lace the spokes, the spokes have to be tensioned and pulled and strained to hold the wheel true. And more than that, if you hit a big pothole, the wheel will go out of true, and most of you will put it to a bike shop, but it has to go back on the jig, and the wheel builder has to tension the spokes again to pull the rim true. Now, when you're making a wheel, as you tension the spokes, they occasionally go, and they ping, and you have to tension them, and you have to press them, and you have to squeeze them so that they hold tension. Sometimes when you're in God's jig, the wheel is running true. Other times when you're in God's jig, there's a wee bit that's ski-with. And God wants you to run true. And what that might mean is a wee bit of tensioning of the spokes. That might not necessarily be pleasant at the time. 
because I'm sure if the spokes could speak, they would go, ow. But the purpose of tension in the spoke is so the wheel runs true. And the one who begins the work and the one who continues the work means he's not going to finish. It doesn't mean when the work began it was finished. It is only finished at the day of the Lord. And so we see God begins, God continues, and God completes the work. And here's the thing. God is working to a schedule. It's not some random event, you know, where he might get caught a bit short for time. In Acts 17, we read this. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that's Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a day fixed in the future called the day of the Lord. It's not going to change. That day was set before the world was made. I don't know the day. And Jesus actually says to his disciples, the times are not known, but the day of the Lord is fixed. In 2 Thessalonians 1, in verses 5 to 12, and it talks about the coming of the Lord, it talks about the day of Jesus Christ, where Jesus will be worshipped and glorified. The day when Christ will be revealed from heaven, and the Bible says, every knee shall bow. And Jesus receives the full reward for his labor and his work on Calvary. And what is his reward? His reward is his people. And the sons and daughters that he has brought to glory. He has brought many sons to glory, we read in Hebrews. And the glory of God, which is talked about in the Old Testament, when God says, I will do this for the glory of my name, I will remember my promise, I will not forget you, is wrapped up in the glory of Christ and the work of Christ, and we are that work. Do you see the wonder of this? Do you see the absolute wonder of this? God wants to glorify his son by completing the work in you. Jesus wants to glorify his father by saving you. You're in the middle of all this. You're in the middle of the Trinity working together to purchase a people and a kingdom for God's son. Your future is not governed by illness. It's not governed by climate change, energy bills, or any political or man-made system. The offer this morning is to have your future and hope in Jesus Christ, the solid rock on which we stand. And what does the hymn say? All other ground is sinking sand. You ever tried pitching a tent on a beach? It's impossible. The sand does not provide the tension to hold the guy ropes, and that's a tent that weighs a kilogram, let alone building a house. One of the commentators says this, the perseverance of the saints rests on the perseverance of God. That's amazing, isn't it? I would give anything to have written that sentence. I'd have given anything to have written that sentence. Your perseverance rests on the perseverance of God. 
And I think we look forward with thankfulness. Because the grace that saves is the grace that transforms. And Paul gives thanks for the work in the Philippines and the change that that has happened. And there's evidence of God's work. They share partnership in the gospel. They say confirmation of the gospel. They are spreading the gospel. We know the church at Philippi sent Paul a gift. They are persevering, they are enduring, and they are are identifying with the gospel. Paul says in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so this work that God is doing is being observed from a human perspective in the growth of the church, the change of the church, the way the church lives. And this is where I think there's a tension. Because I've just spent 10 minutes telling you that this all rests on God. That God does all the work. That God begins, continues, and finishes the work. God wants to glorify His Son. Jesus wants to glorify His Father. It talks about us being partakers of grace. Verse 7. I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with me of grace. This undeserved favor, this gift from God. And God is working here. And God's work is effective. So here's another divine human interface. Where does my effort begin with God's work? Well, in Romans 6 and Ephesians chapter 2, we talk about what we were like before Christ, B.C., And then Paul talks about what we are like after Christ, A.D. We are a new person, a new woman, a new man. We are filled with the Spirit. Paul talks about us being a new creation. The old has gone. We are dead to sin and we are alive in Christ. So there's this new life and godly work within us leads to a godly life. But how does that work? Well, Paul, when you come to Philippians 3, will say, I've not attained all this. I've not got there, but I'm pressing on. In Romans 7, he will say, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, I do. In Hebrews 10, we read that Jesus has perfected or completed those who are being made holy. So there is this sense that God works in us and moves us from death to life and continues that work. But our part is getting on board. Not to earn anything. Not to add to anything. But to to rest and to open our hearts and allow God to change us. John Piper wrote a book called Future Grace when he talks about the strength to live tomorrow is believing in the grace you will get tomorrow. The grace that has been promised. And so Paul in his thanksgiving he's he's looking forward because he's confident that God will continue to work and that confidence is first and foremost in God but also in the fact that he sees the Philippians living for God. 
They are adding to their salvation. They are working it out. But if it was completely passive, if they didn't have to do anything, he wouldn't pray for their growth. And the prayer is for spiritual growth. And he says, and my prayer is that your love may abound more and more. So he wants you to grow in love. And the word here is agape. You know, which everybody says is amazing. It's, it's a word that's difficult to understand. But it's self-sacrifice for another's highest good. It's the word that is used to describe Christ's love for us. And it's a love that gives of self for the benefit of others. So Paul here is praying that you would be like Christ. That you would have a Christ-like attitude. And when you come on to chapter 2 after his little digression about being in prison, this will continue. But he says there's room for growth because he says, I want your love to abound more and more. Actually, the, the, the Greek says abound still more and more. It's actually two, two things. It's not just one event. So if the work is done and it's all perfect and we don't need to do anything, then how is there room for growth? There is room for growth. Because perfection is not yet achieved. And how do you grow in love? So Paul says, I want you to grow in love and more and more with knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment. See, what you think, what you fill your mind with is really, really important. It's really, really important. And we see that now in society. As society changes at a rate that is incomprehensible because of what people are being taught and what people are thinking. Because what you hear and what you think about is important. And this word for knowledge here is used 20 times in the New Testament and it always relates to the knowledge of God, the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of salvation. So it's something secure and firm. We grow as we know. I'm sure you probably sing it in your Sunday school or kids church or whatever the trendy name is for for those sorts of activities. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. See, everybody in society wants a shortcut. Have you noticed that? Everything is about being quicker. If you buy an extra dishwasher, then it will free up an extra 10 minutes a day for you to go and run or be on your Peloton bike or whatever it is. Everything is about being quicker. Everything is about finding efficiency and a shortcut. Well, I hate to tell you this. There is no shortcuts in the Christian life. But it's not complicated. You read God's word. You submit to God's word. You pray to God. You join a church. You submit yourself to godly authority within a church. You sit under God's word and structure. You have fellowship. You live life in Christian community. And that is how you grow as a Christian. There is no special retreat. There is no special experience. 
Growth in God is achieved by the means that God has given us. And so we grow as we know, and then we take that knowledge, and if all we had is knowledge, that would be no use to us, because we need wisdom. And so Paul says, I want you to grow in knowledge and discernment. My daughter's about to start learning to drive. It's a terrifying prospect. She can't even boil an egg. Let's be honest, okay? And the reality is, she will sit the theory test, she will do all the driving lessons, and she will probably know more than me about road signs and what you're supposed to do in the car. But she's got no street smarts. She's got no wisdom of having driven for so many years. You see, we can have all the knowledge, but if we don't apply that knowledge in life, we don't, un- we don't apply wisdom and discernment into our circumstances. The word for discernment here is the word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Subtrudent uses for wisdom. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so we grow in love. We grow in knowledge and discernment so that we are able to approve what is best. And the idea here is testing coins for impurities. The things that really matter, that you focus and you devote your life to the things that really matter, and that is very, very important in our culture. Because the world will seek to pollute you, it will seek to distort you, it will seek to pull you away from faith, because that is the work of the devil, and the devil is also described as the father of lies. So knowledge and discernment and sitting under God's word is what facilitates the growth. And when you come to Philippians 4, you'll see this. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. And so we grow in love, we grow in knowledge and discernment, we are able to approve what is excellent, and that leads to us being transformed and being pure and blameless on the day of the Lord. Many of you will have seen chariots of fire. And I'm sure there's some artistic license in chariots of fire, as, as there are with any films. But the bit that always sticks with me in chariots of fire is the bit when he has run somewhere in Scotland and it's chucking it down and he's under an umbrella and he says, I was running a race, but I want to talk about a different race. I want to talk about the race of faith. And there's this line, he says, where does the power come from to see the race to the end? It comes from within, by faith. And then at the end, when he's winning the 400 meters and it's all wonderful, or the 400 yards then, that, and the Vangelis theme tune plays. And that is quoted, where does the strength come from to finish the race? It says here that you have been filled with the fruit of righteousness by Jesus Christ. In First Peter, it says you have become partakers of the divine nature. That we have been given everything we need to live in godliness. And so Jesus' righteousness that is imputed to us, 
God's grace that is given to us when he begins the work is the one that allows us to see the race to the end. Now, dad is still cycling and he bought an electric bike. So what happens when he hits a hill now? He presses the boost button. He's still turning the legs, but there's a wee, better, there's a wee bit of a better engine there now. You need to turn your legs. You need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to live in community. You need to hear from God's word. But the reality is, the strength in the legs or the charge in the battery is not from you. It's from God and Jesus Christ who has poured out his righteousness and his grace on you. And you see how it ends? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 11. In verse 5, it's God beginning the work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is working in you. Jesus is working in you for the glorification of of the Trinity so that God will have a people for himself and a kingdom to rule over as part of the original plan of creation when the promise was made that the seed of the woman would come. We look forward to the day of the Lord with confidence and thankfulness for the grace of God given to us in Christ that works and causes us to grow in Christ-likeness to the glory of God. I just want to read a wee prayer. There's a reason the slides have got a boat. Um, this is a book. I don't know if I've read prayers from this book from you before. I suspect I have. It's called The Valley of Vision. I don't know if the Faith Mission Bookshop would sell it. It's, it's a collection of Puritan prayers. And this prayer, when I was thinking about you this morning, this is the prayer that came to my mind. And it it seems to sum up, I think, what I'm trying to get across. This tension of God's work and our help and the two working together, God and Jesus being working together to glorify us and to glorify each other and create a people of worship for God. O Lord of the oceans, My little bark sails on a restless sea. Grant that Jesus may sit at the helm and steer me safely. Suffer no adverse currents to divert my heavenward course. Let not my faith be wrecked amid storms and shoals. Bring me to harbour with flying pennants, hull unbreached, cargo unspoiled. I ask great things, expect great things, shall receive great things. I venture on thee wholly, fully, my wind, my sunshine, my anchor, my defense. The voyage is long, the waves are high, the storms are pitiless, but my helm is held steady. Thy word secures safe passage. Thy grace wafts me onward. My haven 
is guaranteed. This day will bring me nearer home. Grant me holy consistency in every transaction. My peace flowing as a running tide. My righteousness as every chasing wave. Help me to live circumspectly with skill to convert every care into prayer. Halo my path with gentleness and love. Smooth every asperity of temper. Let me not forget how easy it is to occasion grief. May I strive to bind up every wound and pour oil on all troubled waters. May the world this day be happier and better because I live in it. Let my mast before me be the Savior's cross and every oncoming wave the fountain in his side. Help me, protect me in the moving sea until I reach the shore of unceasing praise. God begins, God continues, God will finish you pedal your bike let's pray father when we think about these things and we think about your salvation we don't even know where to begin the psalmist said such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain there are things about you that though we wrestle and try to understand we don't But Father, we acknowledge your faithfulness, your word of promise, the fact you have been true from the beginning and will be true for all eternity, that your son was sent, that a work has begun, that you will continue this work, that you will complete this work. And yet you ask of us on a daily basis to engage with the the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more Christ-like. Father, may we pedal our bikes, but may you carry us forward and bring us safely to shore. And may we know your peace and your joy and your sustaining grace as we live in this world and look forward to the day of the Lord. For we ask this in the Lord's precious name. Amen.